We are in the third week of our journey through the New City Catechism, the third of 52. So we're going to be on this for a while. Praise the Lord. But I wanted to take a little bit of time to review what we've seen so far. Obviously, as we go through all 52, we will find other ways to incorporate thinking about these things in our corporate worship. But for now, I wanted to just review the questions with us. So would you humor me by answering these questions? And if you can't remember the answer, it is up on the screen. So I'm going to read the question for us, and then let's read the answer together. Friends, as we saw the first time in January, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We confess that together, don't we? That is why we're gathered, because our hope is in Christ Jesus and in God, that we belong to him, body and soul, and so he carries us through. Not only that, but we saw in February, what is God, right? This question about what is the character and nature of this God that we belong to? So the question is, what is God? Everybody together with me. God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except for through him and by his will. Amen. That includes what we celebrate this week, right? The road to Calvary happened through him and by his will, and it is not outside of his precious and sovereign plan. Today, we're going to be looking at question number three of the catechism, which deals with this question, how many persons are there in God? It's this question that reflects on the very nature and character of God as a triune being. And so first I want us to read the answer to the question together. So the question is, how many persons are there in God? There are three persons in the one true and living God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Amen. That's super easy to read right? But that is really, really challenging to comprehend. What on earth is that talking about? Today, we're going to be spending a brief time unpacking some of the doctrine of the Trinity. This is a doctrine that consumed much of the early church. If you look at church history, you'll see that the question of the Trinity, who is God as both one true and living God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, this consumed the early church. We had early church fathers like Arrhenius and Tertullian defending the Trinitarian understanding of God, that God is both one God and three persons. You had questions about what does that mean for the character and nature of Jesus? How does Jesus Christ as incarnate fit into that? You had people coming up with all kinds of ways to think about and fit that together, some of which were condemned in the early church as heresies. In the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, the Nicene Creed was formulated to say explicitly what we believe about the triune nature of God. After that, we had guys like the Cappadocian Fathers and guys like Augustine come and expand on this idea. What does it mean that God is both three in one and one in three? All the way up to the early 
first millennia, I guess you would call it, like 1054, when the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church split away from each other. It was over issues related to the Trinity and how the Holy Spirit fits within the Trinity that you had a massive split in the church that persists even to this day. All through church history, this question, how does this God exist as one in three preoccupied us? And yet, today in the 21st and 20th century church, the Trinity is largely neglected. This doctrine is left to the side because it's confusing, because it's hard to understand, and in some cases because the word Trinity is not explicitly talked about in Scripture. That's why this catechism question doesn't specifically say, what is the Trinity, right? Because nowhere in Scripture, if you search in a Bible software, you won't find the word Trinity in your Bible. And so, it's thought, maybe this isn't quite so important, maybe we can move to the side of it. Maybe we can think of God as kind of self-explanatory, like we talked about last time, right? We assume when we say we serve God, we believe in God, that we're all talking about the same thing. But the triune nature of God, that there are three persons in the one true and living God, is absolutely central and essential to the God we worship. If we don't worship a triune God, we worship a God that's not talked about in the Bible. Sometimes today, we take a simpler approach and focus on one person of the Trinity. You don't find this so much just focusing on the Father, although you would have in previous generations with a focus on the Father and just a sense of there's God and he creates everything and then stands off from creation, right? That's deism. Often in the evangelical church in America, our focus is massively on the person of Christ, which is good. But sometimes we can end up neglecting the other persons of the Trinity, right? The evangelical church has sometimes neglected the Holy Spirit. But the Pentecostals make up for it, don't they? Right? They focus so much on the Holy Spirit. And I can make a little fun because I grew up in that movement. The point is, it's easy because this doctrine is so challenging and complex to end up collapsing what we understand God to be into God and the person of God that we focus on the most. Jesus and God, okay. Or the Holy Spirit and God, okay. Or, or God creator and God something else. We ought not to do that. The doctrine of the Trinity is massively important as the center of the Christian life. I want to read for you a little passage from Michael Reeves' Delighting in the Trinity, which is the best book, I think I've mentioned this before too, the best book on the Trinity that I have ever read, and it's short and readable. It's so good. I want you to hear what he says about this problem, because I think it's helpful for us to frame our discussion. He says this, What would we say is the article of faith that must be held before all others? Salvation by grace alone? I think many of us would probably say that. Christ's atoning work on the cross, his bodily resurrection. Now, certainly those things are all of first importance, so absolutely critical that they cannot be given up without the very nature and goodness of the gospel being lost. However, they do not stand before all things. By themselves, they are not what makes the Christian gospel Christian. Jehovah's Witnesses can believe in the sacrificial death of Christ, Mormons in his resurrection, others in salvation by grace. 
Granted, the similarities are sometimes only superficial, but the very fact that certain Christian beliefs can be shared by other belief systems shows that they cannot be the foundation on which the Christian gospel rests, the truth that stands before all things. What makes Christianity absolutely distinct is the identity of our God, which God we worship. That is the article of faith that stands before all others. I could believe in the death of a man called Jesus. I could believe in his bodily resurrection. I could even believe in a salvation by grace alone. But if I do not believe in this God, then quite simply, I am not a Christian. And so, because the Christian God is triune, the Trinity is the governing center of all Christian belief. The truth that shapes and beautifies all others. The Trinity is the cockpit of all Christian thinking. It's that important, friends. This idea that God is both one God and three persons is the center of all Christian thinking. All we know about God and think about God, all we know about Jesus, his son, and think about him, all we know about the Holy Spirit and think about the Spirit is governed by this truth. And so we must pay careful attention to it. We must understand what the scripture teaches about the nature and character of God as one God and three persons. So that's our goal today as we walk through this catechism question to see that this is a faithful summary of what the scripture teaches, that there is three persons in the one true and living God, and they are the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and they are the same in substance and equal in power and glory. We want to go through and see that that's what scripture teaches, and then we want to think about how does that impact us? Why does that matter so much? How does that serve as the cockpit to all Christian thinking? So that's our goal this morning. We use the word Trinity to sum up this idea that there are three persons in the one true and living God. Trinity just means tri-unity or three in one together and one in three. And so we look at this through this lens of three in one and one in three, starting with a little bit of where we started with last time. This idea that God himself is one being, right? There are three persons in the one true and living God. We're still only talking about one God. And that's essential. God himself is one. We see that taught all throughout the scripture. Right? In Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema that Israel would confess and they would put in their, in their little phylacteries, their little containers, and they would put in their doorposts and things like that, starts out, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. And he is the Lord. He is Yahweh. Or Isaiah 45, 5 to 6, God says this about himself. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. God's prerogative all through the Old Testament is that, that his people would know that he is the Lord and there is no other. That there is only one God and his name is Yahweh. James 2.9 captures this as well. Even the demons believe this, right? You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. This is the truth that's gone through, shot through all scripture, that God himself is one, there is one God. And yet we have this problem in the New Testament particularly, that it seems like God reveals himself 
as more than one, right? How many persons are there in God? There are three persons in the one true and living God. We have this question because of the New Testament, because of principally what Christ revealed in the Word made flesh, but also what we see in the activities of the Spirit, especially in places like Acts. We see in the New Testament this testimony that God is not just one, but that God is three. We see it explicitly happening with three persons interacting with one another in Matthew three sixteen to 17. Jesus is being baptized. And it says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Notice the three people in there, right? Jesus himself being baptized. The spirit of God descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, which we can infer is the father. Because he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Right? At Jesus' baptism, we see three persons acting together as one. Doing something. Likewise, we see it in Matthew 28, 19, when Jesus is giving this great commission to his disciples. And what does he tell them to baptize in the name of, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Putting these three together, if they were not God, all of them, it would not be right to put them together and baptize in their name, right? It would only be right to baptize in the name of the Father, if only the Father was God, or of the Son, if only the Son was God, or the Spirit, if it was only the Spirit that was God. But Jesus himself calls out all three. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, 13, 14, this benediction that also includes this triune God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We can see in this that it's not just three different kind of names for the same thing. Because they're all doing different things in this benediction too, aren't they? The grace that Jesus brings, the love that God expresses, the fellowship that the Holy Spirit enables. All of these things, Paul wants to be with the church. And he is not calling out three different gods, but he's calling and saying each of these are God. So... <coughs> So we see that there are three persons in the one true and living God. Three in one. And we see through the testimony of scripture that each person is called God. Right? When we list these, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, there's warrant for saying these three are each God. Because scripture itself teaches that these three are each God. There's many places we could go in scripture to see the Father as God. Often in the New Testament... When the New Testament authors say God, they're referring to the Father. And then they say Lord and Christ and Jesus to refer to Jesus. And they talk about the Spirit using spirits. But here explicitly in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 16, or to 6, excuse me, we see that the Father is God. Paul writes this, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there's no God but one. For although they may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. He's just saying we have these false idols that we call gods. That doesn't make them gods. Verse 6, for us there is one God, the Father. He's saying there's one God, the Father, from whom all things are all things and for whom are all things exist. 
and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul is explicitly saying this father is God. There is one God, namely the father. But elsewhere we see that the son himself is God. In John 1, 1 and 14, he's referred to as the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14, John writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 1 of John 1, we see this word is with God, and this word is God. So there's some sameness, the word is God, and there's some difference, the word is with God, the word is distinct from who I'm talking about as this God, John is saying. Then in John 20, 27 to 28, we see Thomas confess Jesus as God and Jesus does not rebuke him. Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. This is remember his appearance after his resurrection where he says, Thomas, you can see those, these wounds. Believe in me. And Thomas answers him and says, my Lord and my God, confessing Jesus, the son of God as God. We also have the Spirit being called God in both the beginning of the Bible and later on in Acts. In the beginning, we see God created the heavens and the earth, right? Genesis 1 1. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God's Spirit Himself being the Holy Spirit, hovering distinct. From God, but also being part of Him. Acts 5, 3 to 4, Paul calls the Holy Spirit Himself God as well. Peter, excuse me. Peter says to Ananias, remember, Ananias and Sapphira are bringing these gifts and they're saying, Yes, we sold this for so much, and they're lying about it. Peter calls them out and he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Notice Peter's explicitly calling out the spirit as who Ananias lied to. And it's the spirit that he says, you've lied not to man, but to God. The spirit is God. There are three persons in the one true and living God. They are the father, the son, and the spirit. And so we see that God is one in three and three in one. That's what the confession is talking about when it says they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. All of these persons are God. That's what it's saying. All of these persons are God. One way to summarize this Bible's teaching is that they are the same in substance yet distinct in person. And sometimes this diagram can be helpful in thinking about these things. This diagram is called the Shield of the Trinity. It's an old drawing. It wasn't originally in English, but it's been translated for us to help us understand these relationships, right? So they are the same in substance. When we say the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the same in substance, what we mean is that they are all self-God. They are all God in themselves. 
substance or an older word for substance is essence is the fundamental nature of something apart from which the thing would not be what it is. It's the core of what makes something what it is without it being something else. In other words, you and I as human beings have a substance to us that makes us human beings and not some other kind of animal. We have a substance to us that makes us human beings and not an inanimate object, right? The things you can describe about yourself, the things we can label that we share in common are our substance or our essence. And God is one in substance or essence. So when we say the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are God, all those arrows pointing into the middle, we're saying they all share the same thing that is what it is to be God. They are all God. Calvin says they are all autotheos or self-God. By their very nature, by the Father's very nature, he is everything it means to be God. By the Son's very nature, he is everything it means to be God. By the Spirit's very nature, he is everything it means to be God. It's not that God the Father is God, and then the Son and Spirit kind of get some of that Godness from him. They have it in themselves. That's what it means for them to be same in substance. And yet, they are distinct in person. Look on the outside of that diagram and you can see the Father is not the Son. Right? The Father is not the Son, which is super important. It wasn't the Father that came and suffered on the cross, was it? It was the Son. It wasn't the Spirit, or it wasn't the Father that was poured out at Pentecost, was it? It was the Spirit that was poured into the hearts of believers. They are distinct in person, distinct without division. The fact that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, does not mean that the Trinity is divided into three pieces. It means that they are distinct in person. In other words, what makes the Son the Son is the fact that He has a Father, right? And what makes the Father the Father is the fact that he has a Son. And what makes the Spirit the Spirit is the fact that the Father and the Son share this mutual communion with one another. All of these persons of the Trinity are persons in relation to one another. The Father is everything God is except for what the Son is and the Spirit is. And the Spirit is everything God is except what the Son and the Father is, etc. They are distinct in person Distinct without division. What we see in scripture that helps us understand these distinctions is the way that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit cooperate together and yet have distinct roles in their works in creation and in redemption, right? What we see in the scripture time and time again is that the Father plans and sends and the Son himself is the one that obeys and accomplishes. And the Spirit is the one that empowers and applies. All through Scripture we see that pattern. These distinct roles in creation. Gregory of Nyssa says this, Every operation which extends from God to the creation has its origin in the Father and proceeds through the Son and is perfected in the Holy Spirit. So there is real and important distinction. That will come in importantly as we think about the nature of this God. They are one in essence and three in person. And that's what we confess in our doctrinal essentials. Right? Our doctrinal essentials, 
Number two is on the Trinity and says this. We believe that there is one living and true God. Eternally existing in three persons. That these are, are, are equal in every divine perfection. And that they execute distinct but harmonious offices in the work of creation, providence, and redemption. You can see in there sharing one essence and yet having distinction in persons. The best summary of this, the most thorough summary of this certainly is the Athanasian Creed. Written in the 6th century, adopted by the Second Lateran Council in the 12th century. This expression of the Trinity is probably the most complete. And I want to read it for us because I think it's helpful for us to see this. The creed says this, whoever will, be sa- whoever will be saved before all things, it is necessary that he hold the Catholic faith. That's small c, the true faith. The Catholic faith, which faith, unless everyone do keep undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing The substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. That has to do with the inability to fully enclose them, to say there's something bigger that exists outside of them. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. Yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. And there is not three incomprehensible, nor three uncreated, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty, yet they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet they are not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there be three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created, nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers. One Son, not three sons. One Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirit. And in this Trinity, none are before or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So that in all things, as is aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. You can see why they would take such pains to be clear about this, right? With that last sentence, he, therefore, that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. In other words, we believe that this is a description, faithful to the scriptures, of God, such that if you don't believe God is like this, you don't actually believe in the one true and living God. And you therefore cannot be saved. Because salvation is only found in the one true and living God. 
This is why this matters. Because Jesus Christ himself, right, says that eternal life is knowing the one true God. Right? John 17, 1 to 3, he's praying and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Trinitarian faith matters because knowing God is life. And Trinitarian faith preserves the godness of God. It makes sure that the God we say we worship is actually the God that is in the scriptures. Right? Deuteronomy 5, 6 to 10 gives us part of the Ten Commandments. And what does God say? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Friends, this matters so much because we are not, most of us, in danger of carving a little idol and putting that up in our prayer closet and praying to that. But we are very, very capable of distorting the triune nature of God and ending up worshiping a God that might as well be made of silver and gold because it's not the God that we see In the scriptures, Trinitarian faith, this idea that God is one God in three persons is difficult for us to comprehend, right? It's difficult for us to walk out. And that difficulty points to how much different God is than us. We tend to take the picture of God we see in the scriptures and we tend to say, it's kind of like me, only a little bit different, right? Maybe he's, he's better. He's more holy, certainly. But he's, but he's a lot like me. We are certainly made in his image, but he is not altogether like us. God is distinct. He is one being, three persons, all united together. And what that means and how that flows out into our life is something we can spend a lifetime thinking about. And it's worth it because we must worship the one true and living God. If we're not, we're in violation of his commands and deserving of hell because we have distorted his image and denied his reality. I think sometimes we can take and end up worshiping a false God because we deny one part of this, not intentionally often, but subconsciously. We think about Jesus as God and then we kind of, the Father and the Spirit are kind of afterthoughts. We end up thinking about The Old Testament God versus the New Testament Jesus versus the spirit that's kind of with us in everyday life. And we can end up denying that there are three individual persons in God. We can end up thinking about God as kind of phases in something. It's like when we use the analogy of the phases of water to describe the trinity there's there's ice and there's water liquid water and there's gas and these are all one thing just in different modes that ends up with us in the heresy of modalism the idea that god's appearing at different times and in different places in different ways in the old testament he's the father in the new testament he's the son 
And then in this church age, he's the spirit. Friends, that is not the true and living God. That is a false God. And we must preserve the three distinct persons in God. Sometimes we lean so far into the three distinct persons, though, that we deny the unity of God. That we deny that there is one true and living God. Not maybe by our direct words, but by the ways we think about God. We can end up thinking like the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all pieces of the God pie, and together they make this God. And friends, that's partialism. That's also condemned as a heresy. It's a false God. Or we can tend to take these gods and think, well, Jesus is God and the Father is God and the Spirit is God, and so we'll just worship them individually, and we end up as polytheists without even meaning to. This is common in the early church. The church has wrestled through this all their life. So this is, if you wrestle through this and you're trying to figure this out, this is nothing new. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, in the Greek-speaking church, in the early church, they tended to emphasize the threeness of God. And so they would end up leaning away from the unity of the triune God. And they would end up in danger of tritheism. The Western, where we get most of our roots from, the Latin church in Rome, the Catholic church that later went through the Reformation, they tended to emphasize the singularity of God at expense of seeing all three persons in God. And so, friends, I think that most danger for us is not thinking of God as three, as three gods, but as thinking of God as one and thinking of Jesus as not truly the God that we worship. So, friends, I want to think then, how does this affect us as we go into particularly Holy Week here? I want to take a few minutes to think about this. If Jesus himself is truly God, and if the Spirit is truly God, and if the Father is truly God, and all three of them are united together, then I think we should think about Christ as we think about this last week in his life in a particular way. I think I want to reflect on this through the lens of Ezekiel 43, 1 to 5. So Ezekiel, in this book, at the beginning of Ezekiel, another confusing Old Testament book, we have these crazy visions of God and the glory of God with these wheels within wheels and eyes and animals' faces and all kinds of things like that going on in the first 10, 11 chapters of Ezekiel. What's happening is God himself is leaving the glory of his temple. He's taking his glory out of his temple because his people have abandoned him. His people have rebelled against him and gone after false gods, worshipped gods that were not the one true and living God, distinct in three persons. And so God has sent his people into exile and he is leaving the temple. And Ezekiel sees this vision of him leaving the temple. And the rest of the book deals with the after effects of that. And all of the curses that are on God's people and on those who led God's people astray. But towards the end of the book, God brings this promise that after exile, after being removed from the promised land, and after God's presence being removed from among his people, there would come a day when God would come back 
to his people. Ezekiel sees a vision of this in Ezekiel 43, 1-5. This Spirit of God leads him to the gate of this temple. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Chibar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is a vision that Ezekiel saw of God coming back to dwell among his people. It did not happen during Ezekiel's day. It did not even happen as the people of Israel were brought out of exile and back into the promised land and slowly rebuilt the temple. This fulfillment of this vision, the glory of the Lord, the triune God coming back to be among his people did not happen until the word became flesh. John 1, 14, remember, says the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. When Christ came and dwelt on this earth, it was the glory of God returning to his people. Returning to tabernacle or dwell among them. The very essence of the glory of the triune God. Wasn't just a man. Wasn't just Jesus. And it wasn't just the fact that this man was God. It was the Father, Son, and Spirit coming together. To reassert their presence among their people. And so when Zechariah prophesied. This coming of the Son of God into Jerusalem. Riding on a colt. He said rejoice O greatly O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow should be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As Jesus is coming back in, to Jerusalem as we celebrate on Palm Sunday. That's what was happening. This king, this glory was returning to dwell among his people and to call his people to come and experience peace under his rule. That makes the rejection that Jesus experienced all the more upsetting, all the more poignant, all the more incomprehensible that this God that they waited for and they longed for was coming to them and yet they rejected him. Matthew 27, 27 to 31, after Jesus is condemned and delivered over to the soldiers, these soldiers of the governor take Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Friends, as we reflect on these things, as we think about Jesus' last final week and his impending death on the cross, it is 
imperative that we remember that Jesus is part of the triune God that we worship, right? One in essence, all God, and yet distinct in person, distinct in operations, so that at the cross, Jesus could cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's not lost his deity, but the Father himself has poured out his wrath on him and turned away from him. And then at the resurrection, Paul could write that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead through the Holy Spirit. Right? All of this triune God is acting all together in this week. And friends, I think our hearts will be lifted up to worship him truly and fully if we reflect on the fact that he is one God in three and three in one. As Gregory of Neziansis says, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illuminated by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. Let's let that be our thought as we dwell on Christ this week, thinking on the one being brought back to the three and thinking on the three being brought back to the one so that we can say about all of them, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.